Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane, and thank you so much for tuning in for an hour of science. In the virtual studio with me now is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you very well. And Dr. Laura, good to see you too. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And we've got Anu on the line. How are you going, Anu? Morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Look, there's so much stuff going on. Uh, I think new you and I are just going to have to geek out about space stuff going on at some stage for about a month because, you know, there's so many different missions and things going on. It's a bit exciting. But Laura, I might start with you for some news for today. Uh, you know, I know you're Miss Immunology extraordinaire, but what's been uh, floating your boat this week? Well, love immunology, but can't go past a story about a diabolical beetle. So this week in Nature, um, some scientists investigated the secrets of the strength of this diabolical ironclad beetle. That's its actual name. That's the name of the beetle. I'd never heard of this beetle, so I was excited. Um, The sort of species name is, oh God, I don't know if I can say it, Phylloids diabilicus. Yep, sounds good. Did did I sound like I know what I was talking about? Anyway, this beetle is tough. It's so indestructible, you can run over it with a car and it will be okay. And the researchers actually did this. What a cool job. They took the beetle, they ran over it with a Toyota as the first part of their study. Okay, so the toughness of this, of the diabolical beetle is very unique. If you, most beetles live about weeks to months, but this guy lives for two years, which is the equivalent of a human living to like 10,000 years old. Um, Attributable large to a lack of editors. No one can get its beak through it. It's so tough. And, you know, even, you know how people who study sort of insects, they pin them to boards? Well, you can't pin this beetle to a board because you just can't get it through. It's really tough exoskeleton. So in this study, um, the researchers wanted to investigate why um, the exoskeleton of this beetle is so strong. And this research was actually funded by um, by the Air Force, actually, because they wanted to know how to make better materials. So the first thing that they did was they performed compression tests and they found that the exoskeleton skeleton could withstand 150 newtons of force. Now, that means nothing to me, might mean a lot to you guys, but I'm going to put this into things that I can understand. It's 39,000 times its body weight, and it's the equivalent of a 200-pound man being able to withstand two spaceships on top of him, or 125 stacked blue whales on top of him, and just walking away completely unscaled. That is how badass this beetle is. So, um, they use CT scans and um, electron micro to analyze the beetle and they found that the secret to its strength um, lies in its elytra and that's the hard casing that um, encases beetles flight wings so you know there's those two things that come apart and then the flight wings come out well the diabolical beetle has evolved to become um, flightless and in so doing it's fused those um, two elytra together and it's interlocked like a 3d jigsaw puzzle and um, this um, elytra can withstand so much pressure that if you put a compression sort of on it and the researchers shows videos of how they were doing this. They were trying to crush this beetle, and poor beetle. And um, they found that rather than um, snapping at 
the sort of at the neck, where generally when you put a pressure point down, things will snap. This um, there was actually layered fractioning with this um, beetle instead, so it would shed off its layers like an onion. So the researchers, so this is like you know, thou- you know, thousands of years of evolution, like right here, straight to engineers. So they three um, D printed models stimulating this structure, this three D um, you know indestructible structure of the um, of the beetles, and their model showed that the beetle inspired structures were stronger and tougher than current engineering fasteners. And so this is why, you know, the Air Force would be um, interested in funding this sort of research, because this would think to make um, new ways to fuse aircraft seg- segments together, which um, might be superior. Well, they said it would be superior to um, you know, fasteners we've got at the moment, and also um, inform new um, construction materials and so forth. So I thought that was really amazing that they could take this totally badass beetle and um, learn some of the awesome evolution um, strategies that's kept this beetle um, going. Looks like a little dead rock if you're interesting. (laughs) 2.5 centimetres long, little rock, plays dead a lot, looks dead, looks like a little rock. Anyway, I thought that was a really charming study. But impossible to kill, yeah. I love it. Possible to kill. It kind of it's it's a bit like those images you 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 know for those of you out there who are arachnophobic you've all seen those images of a, a boot on a um on a, a huntsman spider and how they just seem to go nah it's not going to kill me nah <laughs> and if you've ever tried to take care of one you know nah you can't kill them they're, they're just super tough nature nature knows knows stuff almost swore nature knows yeah almost swore for a second there um thank you Laura very interesting stuff Dr Ray what do you got for us. Well, Dr. Shane, this just threw me for a loop this week. Part of this people knew, but what's what's body temperature? What do you expect your body temperature to be? About 37.5. About 37, 37. So I thought, yeah. And and as it turns out, body temperature was originally postulated to be about 37 by a German physician in 1867. And while body temperature is actually reported to be a range that's typically 36.2 to 37.5, um, I didn't know that it's changed with time. And this isn't because we got better thermometers. So uh, studies have shown over the last 150 years, the body temperature for folks in the U.S. has decreased on average from 37.5 to about 36.4. Uh, and this is attributed to incidences, uh, less changes in infection, improvements to socioeconomic conditions, and an increase in lifespan. And um, But that was kind of, we, we kind of observed that after the fact, and there was no great control there. So there has been a study going on for about the last 16 years. It's the Semaine Health and Life History Project, which is an indigenous farming group of people in the Bolivian Amazon, uh, where they've been studying and surveying their health for, six, for a 16-year period. And I think they've learned a lot about it, but they just put this article out led by an anthropologist out of um, Cal- uh, San Diego. Um, on uh, on body temperature over this period. And so these are uh, forage farmers. And over the last 16 years, they've seen very big changes in their access to healthcare, um, the prevalence of antibiotics. Um, they live in a very pathogen-rich environment, as well as things like worm infections as well, uh, and looked at how the things have changed with an increase in antibiotics, a, a decrease in infections, um, because over the last 16 years, their average body temperatures actually dropped from about 37 to 36 and a half. Uh, and this is a study of um, 5,000 people, over 110 villages surveyed um, and normalized for the things you'd think of men, women, children, seasonal variations. But what they found was that while infection rates had, had lowered, it's not just infections on its own. Um, that it, they, they attributed this more as a combination of, and you'll love the, uh, these words are big, but I'm sure Dr. Laura knows them, epidemiological reasons, um, as well as socioeconomic. And 
because the infections reduction alone wasn't enough to explain it because there's still lots of different pathogens that they live in. Um, and modernization of housing hasn't changed that much. There's still a lot of open wall houses, but certainly they did attribute that changes because of the socio-socioeconomic changes, you get changes in physical activity, uh, body composition, antibiotic usage, and also thermal environment. In the winter, people finally have warmer clothes. And, and that it's this combination of both environmental uh, and immunological changes that they attribute that this change has happened over 16 years instead of 150. Um, mm. It's not that indigenous farmers are living in a, in a wealthy country, but this hypothesis that this body temperature change was attributed mostly to higher income countries. Um, this is an ex more of a control study for a lower income country where you can see changes actually affect change in body temperature. And I just found that pretty interesting. Hmm. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's fascinating, Dr. Ray. I think um, I, I'd always had this image that was just a constant for a last couple hundred thousand years. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. why would you think otherwise? Yeah, um, fascinating. And the first thing that went through my mind as she started speaking is just like, but our incubators and uh, water baths are still at 37 for the, human, mm. for the cells. Anyway. Yeah, might have to adjust yeah, things a bit, Laura. Might have to adjust a few <laughs> things there in the lab. Anu, you're, uh, you've been looking into astronaut training in water and such things. Do tell. Yes. So this last week, um, there's a piece of research coming out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California where they've been developing uh, with two of my favorite things, which is essentially technology and also space. Um, they've been developing augmented reality technologies uh, for use in um a space analog called NEMO, which stands for NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations. And this one's called Aquarius because it's underwater. Now, the benefits of having something underwater where you can test um, astronaut processes and training and things like that is that you're able to mimic uh, elements of weightlessness, for example, and extra uh, vehicular activity. And you can actually have um, astronauts training in there so that they can actually go and perform spacewalks, which is one of the most dangerous things that you can do in space. Now, this particular um, technology was going to enable astronauts to uh, uh, bridge a barrier between um, what they call cognitive distance, where you're actually reading something off a piece of paper and then performing a task in a physical environment. So using a piece of technology such as the Microsoft HoloLens, which is augmented reality technology, enables um, researchers to, for example, um, basically uh, put, uh, kind of like relay the information directly into a physical space. So using things like arrows, um, you're actually able to see it in front of you. Uh, long term, this would enable astronauts to perform and train to perform um, really complex tasks in the space environment. Because the researchers didn't actually have access to the underwater extreme environment to start off with, they used 3D printing, similar to Laura's um, story about the diabolical beetle, to um, geotag locations within a uh, 3D printed environment so that they'd be able to synchronize that into the HoloLens itself, into the program. And um, then they were able to take that uh, and then deploy it within the astronaut crew underwater, and they were able to um, perform different tasks. This particular task they tested with was quite complex. It was a, um, a sanitation tank purge. And that's these are very similar tasks that you'd actually do in the space environment. And they were trying to test the feasibility of such a technology, and they found that it was quite successful. So moving forward into the future, we can really see technologies like this being miniaturized into technologies that we can use here on Earth as we grow older, you know, performing, you know, being able to assist us while we perform everyday 
activities. Yeah, I love uh, I love some of the terminology there, and people you can interpret sanitation tank purge any way you like, but I'm interpreting <laughs> as in, it sounds like either flush or clean the toilet, um, one yeah. of those things. But it's it, it's fascinating to me. I I suspect a lot of people have in their head this idea that when you're weightless and you're out in space, it's really easy to move around, and it's actually the exact opposite, which is why putting them in water can simulate that because if you I, I've never Googled this, but I suspect if you Google Alan Shepard spacewalk heart rate, you will find that the poor guy was, you know, progressively getting more and more fatigued and in trouble the longer he was outside of his spacecraft because you know, whenever whenever you do that, and I think it was Alan Shepard, I'm trying to remember who the first the first spacewalk was by, I could have that wrong. But whenever you're outside in, in that environment, it is really hard to move. And That's right. Yeah, and people and get it's exhausted. Made even worse. It's even worse. It's made even worse by the rigidity of the actual spacesuits themselves. Mm. It's the EVA spacesuits. And so you'll actually notice that their temperature rises as well as their heart rate at the same time. Um, And when they actually do come back into the ISS itself, it takes them a certain amount of time to actually cool down and then get back to normal functioning, you know, abilities before they can go about the rest of the day. Yeah. So I suspect, folks, if you're thinking, you know, a little bit of a spacewalk would kind of be a cool, fun thing to do. Actually, from from all sort of uh, reports, it is extremely extremely stressful on the body and very, very hard to do and it just knocks the crap out of you. And I think um, that's why often they talk about some of the longest spacewalks and they're not they're not in hours, they're in tens of minutes because that's all the human body can really handle because it's so difficult to do. So, yeah, good to see some of those, um, some of those things uh, coming together. I remember a few years back we had a guest on talking about hybrid virtual reality where it was a combination of the real objects you're talking about, a new being 3D mm-hmm. printed and the virtual reality system that they were in so that they could they could feel and touch things at the same time as being in the virtual reality environment, which was um, super interesting. But adding the water component to that as well is just yes, spectacular. Yes, absolutely. Good. And even with things like haptic feedback, where you're actually yep. able to feel things, where there actually might be no location somewhere else across the world, really improves things like telemedicine, where yeah. you're able to perform ultrasounds without actually having to be in the room. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic <laughs> stuff. Well, team, thanks so much for uh, bringing in the news uh, for Einstein and Gogo at this, uh, God, we, it's the 1st of November for crying out loud. Can you believe that the year's almost over? I think it's because most of us like bears slept through the majority of 2020. Um, yeah. So thanks, thanks, team. And we'll speak to you again real soon. Thank you, Shane. Great to see you. Thanks, thanks, guys. Triple R. We are now going to start our interviews with quite a number of amazing people from RMIT. And first up, I have the person who is responsible for all this, Associate Professor Kate Fox. She's the Associate Dean for Higher Degree Research in the School of Engineering. She was uh, Engineers Australia Most Innovative Engineer for 2019, the superstar of STEM last year. She won a Victorian Tall Poppy Award. Uh, Did I miss anything, Kate? Did you win anything else last year? No, that's about it. I think I got, I got, I got a Pride of Australia medal nomination too, if you want to throw that in. <laughs> Fantastic. It's like 2020, you're sitting around doing nothing because, you know, 19 was such a big year. Hey, everyone's doing that. 2020 is pretty lean. 2020's lean for all of us, I think. Now, tell us a bit about your, your role there at uh, the university as Associate Dean. What, what does that mean, Associate Dean for Higher Degree Research? Yes, in my role, what I try to do is provide a safe and a welcoming environment for all our PhD and master's students. And we do that through a number of things, you know, the traditional metrics of a a PhD or a master's, you know, going through the the milestones and that sort of stuff. But I really feel strongly about trying to upskill all these students for life after 
their PhDs and one of those is to do things like this, you know, a bit of communication on the radio. Mm. And, and what about your research, your own research? I mean, uh, you, you've won these awards for being an innovative engineer. What have you been doing exactly? Well, I'm really into 3D printing and using new materials like diamond as the scaffold for bone growth and orthopedic applications. Yeah. So in terms of 3D printing these days, I mean, I always had this image about 10 years ago, and you can tell me whether this is happening, but that you would you would go in for a hip replacement or something, they do a, an MRI of you, take that data, somehow port that into some 3D printer and turn me into the bionic man with a hip that was exactly the same as the one they were going to take out. Is that... Is that is that where we're at? Because in the old days, it was like, oh, you look like about a number four. It was like putting on shoes. It's exactly where it's at at the moment. Obviously, additive manufacturing has added a whole new range of abilities to try and get implants that match much more closely to your own natural body size, shape, um, design things to match the interface for your, I guess, and a big application of things like people who are going in with, you know, bone cancers, osteosarcomas, where they are going to lose a proportion of their bone. Mm -hmm. We're able to now use algorithms and a bit of clever engineering to be able to design, build, fabricate implants that fit just that patient and just that wound. Yeah. And you mentioned diamond. Why, why on earth would you be using diamond? What, what are the benefits there? Well, talking about diamond is, I guess, when you get a traditional implant, so a titanium, a cobalt, chromium, they're great materials. They have had a very long life of being a successful implant material, but they're not things that you naturally find in great abundance within the human body. We're looking at things like diamond, which is a carbon that will be, be a bit more, I guess, bio-resembling. Mm -hmm. and hopefully have a better integration or a better combination between the implant and the bone and a better patient outcome. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the things that some people would immediately think of there is cost, but diamond is relatively easy to make, yeah? Yeah, so it's a synth synthetic thing, you know. Um, it's no more expensive than having to buy the powders that go into the, the 3D printers anyway. Titanium powder itself isn't particularly cheap. So it's really you know, much of a muchness around the cost. Yeah. Now, um, you, you've been, uh, I was going to say hassling, but you, you've been uh, contacting me for some time about doing this today. Uh, how did you go about selecting the, the six students that we'll be speaking to? So the reason why I want to do this is sort of show that what we're doing at RMIT is really wide. We've got seven disciplines of engineering going from civil to mechanical to biomedical to electrical, all those sort of things. And we've got this great diversity, not just in the topics we cover, but also the candidates we have. And they're all doing amazing things. And I think your show is the perfect platform to, I guess, show the world all the amazing things that these candidates are doing and will do in the future. Well, sounds good to me, Kate. Well, thanks so much for organising it all. And we're going to go on now to our, our first of your, your students. Imran Moez Khan is a PhD student in the Department of Electrical and Telecommunications Engineering at RMIT. Good morning, Imran. How are you going? Hi, good morning. I'm doing well. It's great to have you on. Now, you work on something that I find is fascinating. It's this, this idea of somehow using our smartphones to engage with our cars, I suppose, from the point of view of security and using them. How, how is that going? This seems, I mean, I don't know about most people, but my smartphone doesn't always behave. So how do we go from something perfectly reliable like our normal key fob or our keys to something like a, a smartphone being used in that capacity? 
Yes, uh, that's that's exactly what uh, my PhD topic's about. Um, so one of the issues uh, with using the smartphone uh, for vehicle access is obviously, as you mentioned, you know, your smartphone doesn't always behave properly, and um, it, it it also really depends on the environment that you're in. Um, so you're going to have uh, very um, uh, radio frequency noisy environments where your smartphone won't be able to communicate very well with your car. And so that's one of the challenges that we're trying to address by uh, extracting as much data as we can from the smartphone, including the sensors, and trying to integrate that into a generalized framework uh, in order for you know the, the communication to occur better. And especially uh, the aspect that I'm focusing on in my PhD is to sort of localize the driver with respect to the vehicle. So the idea behind this is that um, the smartphone will be able to go ahead and unlock, let's say, unlock or lock the vehicle, depending on how far or close the driver is, or you know, immobilize the engine in order to offer better vehicle access, security, and uh, uh, management. Yeah, and I can imagine there must be a certain hurdle of getting people to start using these sorts of technologies because I know with my vehicle, it has a setting where there's just a proximity setting with the key and it will unlock if I'm within a certain proximity. And I just don't trust it. I'm, I'm not there yet. Um, I'm still adapting. I still like to push a button and, and hear a beep. Um, there must, how do you sort of go about doing that part? There must be a, an element of getting people engaged with the technology in a way that's trustworthy and is working. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. I, I think um, the the trend in the automotive industry is sort of that they're moving towards that because if you if you look at things like uh, car ride sharing um, uh, and sort of the car sharing uh, uh, application of it, so you have um, uh, you know these car rental companies where you can leave a vehicle and uh, if you install an app on your phone, you can come up to the vehicle and sort of unlock it with just the app and then rent it out for a number of hours and then drop it off at another point, right? So it, it's sort of I think the general trend is that we're kind of moving towards those sorts of implementations anyway. Now, mm. the idea is to go ahead and offer this as um, a system that's on vehicles uh, sort of natively. So people will be kind of more open to using that in their own personal vehicle as well. Mm. I know, um, you know, there are a number of sort of home-based items that we already sort of do this for. I had an amplifier, an audio amplifier a few years back where I almost never used the remote because it had a really good app that I could use. It was sort of more effective and I tended, like most people, to have my phone strapped to my hand, you know, permanently. <laughs> have we... Is it similar technology or are there new challenges that you have to overcome for the, the car industry specifically, especially around safety, I can imagine? Yes, exactly. Um, there are particular challenges um, that that uh, sort of um, make it much more difficult. Uh, another one of the challenges is that, for example, your car is switched off and you want to be able to unlock it as you're walking towards the vehicle mm. or you want the vehicle to unlock automatically. So while the car is switched off, you don't want... Uh, you don't want that system to be using a lot of power. Yep. So it has to be really, really, uh, it has to have a really low power signature. Um, so yeah, definitely those are those are issues. And as you mentioned, safety is well. uh, one of the problems uh, also that we're looking into is meeting the strict 
uh, insurance recommendations, yep. uh, the car insurance uh, recommendations and standards. So the vehicle has to be sort of locked or immobilized a certain distance away when the driver is a certain distance away. Yep. So yep. yeah, definitely. Look, it's fascinating stuff. Imran, thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you. Next up is Rebecca Torb. Rebecca is a PhD candidate in electrical engineering working in photonics. And um, good morning, Rebecca. Can you hear us okay? Yep, great. Fantastic. Now, photonics, uh, this is uh, the, you know, the manipulation of light. Yes. How did, you get into how did you get into photonics? It's my old area, so I'm a big fan. Ah, um, <clears throat> well, I originally did my master's in um, solar cells and then I was looking around for a PhD and photonics came up and I thought, okay, not too much of a, a stretch, so we'll yeah. see how we go. Yeah. Now, you, you've been working on a, a optical-based gyroscope. Before we get into that, just give people a bit of a, a quick run on what a gyroscope is because everyone's heard this word, I think, but not everyone knows exactly what its purpose is. Yeah, so a gyroscope is just able to measure angular rotation. That's pretty pretty much all that it's it's doing. Right. And an optical gyroscope in particular is able to do that through having um, light as the sensing element. So mm. yeah. So this this would allow you then to determine something's position in space or orientation in space. Uh, so orientation. So as the thing or the gyroscope rotates, what you're looking for is the light will form an interference pattern. Mm. Okay. And why use light? I mean, gyroscopes have been around for a very long time. What are the advantages of using light in this sort of setup? So uh, what we find, especially with uh, the latest fiber optic gyroscopes, they're very, very accurate. Um, and that's, you know, in some of the applications, we're needing to get that accuracy, especially in uh, things such as autonomous vehicles. Mm. And you're working in particular on on nano-sized ones. So, um Obviously, nano nano being very very small, you know, ten to the minus nine ish. So, what what sort of um, applications would require a gyroscope to be that small? Like something, you know, literally, what is it, one fifty thousandth of the human hair width? Yeah. So, um, as we're moving towards things such as autonomous vehicles or the Internet of Things, we're having the the package space really needs to be reduced. So we want tinier and tinier sensors, and then we can open up the applications to be used in a lot more different areas. Yeah. So, oh. um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So can you give us a couple of examples? Uh, yeah. So, we, you know, we're going from something that a fiber optic gyroscope might be a package space of, you know, 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres, but a tiny little uh, gyroscope, uh, a recent nano gyroscope was made that can fit on uh, a grain of rice. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, presumably there you could distribute large numbers of them across the surface of an object for, you know, very detailed and accurate measurements, yeah? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Rebecca, thanks so much. Uh, good luck with the work and uh, thanks for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We have a group of students from RMIT on the line today, and we're talking about a range of different engineering topics. And up next is Sina Milani, who's a PhD student in the School of Engineering. 
Good morning, Cena. How are you going? Morning, Dr. Shane. It's, Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to talk to you. You work on something that I, I find absolutely fascinating. It's this idea, I guess, the technical term is advanced driver assistance systems. Um, I'm guessing what you mean is systems that take over when us uh, silly organics are not doing a good job. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, pretty much that's it. Uh, basically, it's when, when the driver is doing something that he or she shouldn't do. So, uh, or maybe maybe the driver is not doing it the right way. So that's uh, when the system comes in, like from very basic systems like ABS or traction control systems to more advanced ones that uh, help the driver in keeping the lanes or um, keeping the distance from other vehicles, so on, yeah. Hmm. So it's interesting to me because we know that in various parts around the world, there are already autonomous cars driving themselves around, which presumably must have all of this information, both in their technology and their programming. But we're seeing, I suppose, I'm not sure how you, you perceive this, but this sort of slower entry of some of these technologies into our normal everyday cars. Is that, is that what, what's happening at the moment? Because every, every time you buy a new car, it seems to have a new acronym that you have to learn. Yeah, that's true. Actually, uh, depending on the amount of intervention that these systems do to our driving, uh, it could eventually get into the realm of self-driving cars, basically. But basically, they are nothing else but a very advanced advanced driver assistance system. So, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, as soon as the, ve- the, the vehicle is able to take care of the steering and, and uh, braking and throttle at the same time and... Um, uh, perceiving the environment around it, then it becomes fully autonomous. Yeah. What about when things are going wrong? Because presumably this is where, you know, humans, we, you know, some of us uh, tend to do well with it. Others tend to panic and freeze up a bit. You know, this is sort of where you want the vehicle to be assisting us the most because that's when we're in dangerous situations. How do you, how do you sort of design vehicles to be able to deal with things like blowouts and skidding off the roads and icy roads? That seems to me like the really hard part. Yeah, actually, this is the part that I've been focusing on in my PhD. Um, we all have seen in the movies the, the stunt actions that we call drifting, that sometimes it, it's really cool. So the driver is a very skilled one. So uh, they would do fascinating things, but we not necessarily like them on the road. So uh, it's actually something dangerous that we want to avoid. Or if mm. it happens due to like an accident or whatever, then we want to mitigate it. So that's where I've been focusing on by studying the vehicle motion, for example, it goes back to vehicle dynamics and how we can control it. Mm. And I, I suppose the control aspect is, is one thing and you have certain parameters you can change there, the steering, the, the speed, the, the brakes, and so forth, and I guess the weight distribution in the vehicle. But what about the sensing part? How do you go about determining what's going on? You know, what's, um, you know, drifting versus normal driving? How do you determine that and feed that information in? That's a very good question. Uh, actually, by modeling the system, which is the vehicle on the road, uh, with mathematical descriptions, we, we might be able to come up with uh, certain equations or uh, inequalities basically showing whether the vehicle is drifting or not based on the variables like angles and velocities and so on. And that's what I've been working on because it's not been very much done in the uh, academic literature previously. So uh, I, I was able to come up with a metric that could basically tell you whether the car is in drifting condition or not. And then it could be used for a controller to uh, judge 
whether I should intervene or not. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and you've also, I mean, just to make it even harder for yourself, you've been looking at truck-trailer combinations, which I can imagine are, you're almost getting into sort of non-linear systems there where the trailer, trailers just have a mind of their own, in my view. Uh, well, actually, with, the, with this drifting stuff, I've, I haven't been working with trucks and trailers, but I have done it previously for other driving conditions in my previous work. But the point is, yes, it is actually very nonlinear because of the forces, especially tire forces are very unpredictable uh, and they behave in a very nonlinear fashion. And, uh, you know, when the accelerations are large, so you cannot ignore particular terms in your equations and it's all nonlinear. Yes. Yeah. Oh, look, it sounds like a, a very complicated scenario. I can just finally, uh, what sort of computing power do you need to do these calculations? Well, to be honest, it's not like we need a supercomputer to do this for us. It's an art of modeling it with uh, proper uh, degrees of uh, you know accuracy because if the system is too complicated the modeling is too complicated then you would see simulations but you cannot perceive what's happening there yep. so you need to come up with a sort of a balance between uh, modeling accuracy and simplicity yep. so it's a little bit uh, yeah yeah oh look it sounds, sounds like an absolute art form Sina, thanks so much for chatting to us today good luck with that modeling and maybe we'll see some of your uh, your modeling systems in our vehicles in the coming decades thank you very much it was a pleasure next up is lee may vu who is doing a master's by research in the school of engineering at rmit uh, lee may good morning how are you going Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's it's interesting. I, for the last, I don't know, 25 years of my life have, in various ways through my research and some of my other commercial work, have been working with things called piezoelectric materials. And so, I, I thought I knew a lot about them. And then I was reading what you sent along to me and some of these sort of ceramic materials that we've used in the past are maybe not the best ones. So, before we get on to that, um, just quickly, what do we mean by a piezo? electric material? What does a material do when it has that characteristic? So piezoelectric materials convert uh, mechanical energy to uh, electrical energy and vice versa. So what happens is when the material deforms, um, an electron is able to travel through the material, sort of, um, and that creates a current. Or when a current is run through the material, the material de itself deforms. Yeah, and what are the usual ones made of? They're, they're a ceramic material, typically, yeah? Um, yes, yeah, so normally we see things like quartz or lithium niobate, and they're used in things um, typically to do with vibrations. Yeah. Now, you're looking at some completely new materials, though, for, for these sorts of purposes that might be more advantageous. Tell us about what your what materials you're investigating. So, I'm looking at a group um, called the... Uh, chalcogenides and basically these are materials containing um, sulfur, um, selenium and um, and particularly what I'm looking at is um, tin um, sulfide um, and germanium sulfides mm -hmm. um, and what's unique about these uh, in their normal form, so in their general um, crystal forms that are like big and large, they're not actually piezoelectric materials. It's only when they're um, like reduced down to a nanoscale or their 2D forms only being um, atomically thick um, that they display these um, properties. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, it's, it's really interesting to me. One of the things that I always remind people is that if you put down a layer of gold on, say, a piece of glass and it's only a few atom layers thick, it's no longer gold in color. And a lot of times we don't realize just how much things change in terms of their properties when they're really thin. So we're seeing this as well with these piezo materials um, that we haven't looked at before. So these are materials that only have piezoelectric properties when they're really small. Yes, that's correct. 
And where would we see applications for these? Because many of the things I've seen use much larger chunks of piezo materials. So where would we be applying really thin versions? So these will be really good in things like sensors because they'll be particularly sensitive um, being on a very small scale. So we can imagine um, something, as you said earlier, um, what nano size is, is like thousands of like times smaller than the width of our hair. So we can imagine that these materials can generate the same amount of electricity um, as those typical materials like quartz and stuff, which are quite larger as big as coins. Yeah, oh, um, fascinating. So, yeah. yeah, and um, are they easy to produce? Like, uh, I assume that um, you're, you're moving into areas that are easy to produce, otherwise we wouldn't be able to use them industrially at all. Um, there are quite a few different techniques on how to produce them. So the materials I'm looking at in my research are layered materials, uh, which means when they naturally form, they're already in um, layers and are only held together by uh, forces called uh, Van der Waals forces, which mm-hmm. are quite weak. Um, and you can easily tear them apart, um, even using sticky tape. Right. Yeah, I've seen that old trick with certain materials. And people, if you if you haven't seen this, sometimes you can have layers of things. And if you put a bit of sticky tape on the top layer of these materials, you can just rip one layer at a time off. And you get very, presumably you get very thin layers when you do that. Yeah, Lima? Yes, we can get down to uh, two, one to two layers. Of um, atoms. Depending on the materials. Yeah. yeah, one or two layers of atoms. Yes. With a piece of sticky tape. Yeah. Yeah technical stuff. It's great. Lee May, thanks yeah. so much. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. It's great to hear about these new new materials coming out. And um, and I just find all that stuff is fascinating once you, you see materials change their properties when you get down to a certain size. So thanks so much for being on Einstein The Go-Go today. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. And next on the line is Areshna Ranaraja. I think I got it closely right. Did I, Areshna, did I get it close? Yes, yes. Not too bad, about four out of ten. Not too bad. Now, you're working on um, employability learning of engineering students. This is not something I know a lot about. Tell me what you mean by that. Okay, uh, so uh, my aim is to uh, examine employability learning of engineering students. So in that, I'm seeing how engineers, my main focus is on engineering students, uh, so engineering students and engineers from both local and international backgrounds, how they perceive employability and what factors are influencing their employability learning. Wow. So, yeah, so, yes. I mean, this this project must have been pulled off the rails because of the COVID scenario. How has that affected what you're doing? Yes, it did affect my data collection a bit because earlier I was doing face-to-face interviews and discussions with students and engineers. So I had to go to the online platforms now. Mm. Uh, It's not that great, but still uh, it's good. And it's also providing us uh, providing me more reach, like because of the online platforms, I'm reaching out to people that I would have not, uh, I could have not in the face-to-face scenario. So yeah. it, it's all good. The research is, I think, all about that, you know, being uh, progressive, uh, learning from what you uh, do, and it, it's a progressive thing. So yeah, yeah. Now, engineering is one of our professional programs, as in what I mean by that. It's like doing accounting or a medical doctorate degree or becoming a dentist where pretty much, you know, you would expect most people to enter that that field of expertise. Is that the expectation that you're seeing students having or are they sort of more like, you know, if you do a science degree, a lot of people are like, yeah, I may end up a scientist, not so sure. It's a little less clear. Okay, so... Um 
in my project, uh, I'm I'm more about looking at how uh, engineering students learn about employability and mm -hmm. how they develop employability. Okay. Uh, so to be um, more uh, to to explain it a bit more in detail, when it comes to employability, now there are a lot of employability models and frameworks that uh, talk about what are the competencies that need to be developed to become a good engineer. Mm. Uh, but there's less discussion on how these can be developed and what are the factors most influence, uh, most importantly, the fa factors that are influencing them in developing employability, like the things that are enabling them, the positive factors, and the things that might constrain them from uh, learning about employability. Yeah. G give us a couple of examples quickly of the constraints. Ex like, what sort of things would prevent that? Yes. So, I have done a pilot study, and I've uh, from that, so these are early indications. So, uh, when I talk to engineers and engineering students, uh, especially the local students, so school education as uh, important to developing their generic skills and transferable skills, yep. whereas the international students were more soon to be seen to be dependent on their university education to right. you know develop those skills, and yeah. then also about you know how family and culture, those yep. aspects play in their employment yeah. learning. Oh, look, it's, it's complex. Uh, Arisha, we, we must go on to our last guest, but thank you very much for being on Einstein and Gogo. -Go. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for the next opportunity. Up, next up is Ravi Shakar, who's a master's student at RMIT. Uh, Ravi, you're working on, on textiles that are smart that can help us with our wounds. Tell us about that. Yeah. Hi, Shane. Thank you for calling me. So I am working on smart textiles, which can emit light. And this light can help heal wound quicker. So oh. light therapy is quite common. It is already happening all over the world to heal other uh, uh, medical issues like jaundice. So this one is using orange and red light and in the form of textile. So right now, all the uh, light emitting materials are very rigid. So you cannot wear it and move around. So mm -hmm. this will be more like a textile, which you can wear it. Let's say a glove, you can wear it and it will help to heal the wound quickly. Okay, so 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 this would sort of replace a traditional bandage or something in that sense, and, no, uh, and it will it will not replace the traditional bandage. It will be a, a additional advantage. Right. So you can still use your ointment. You can still use your bandage, but if you want to crop, apply a different method, a new method, uh, let's say a more natural method, if you don't want to use any chemical or ointment, then can you then you can use a light therapy. Right. And or let's say if you are sleeping. Then you can we can your wear a glove and you sleep all the all night and then wound will heal quicker. And and what's the source of the light? Are these little diodes or is it something fluorescing? Yeah, it will be very micro size uh, diodes which will be electroluminescent material. So obviously you will give some kind of power through battery or something, and then it will illuminate light with a very high intensity and which will be absorbed by the chromophores inside the body and which will accelerate the chemical reaction inside the body. Wow. And 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 just quickly, the when you say high intensity of light, we're not talking about something that's problematic though, are we? I mean, you can actually shine very no. bright lights on your body without any effect very at all. Very bright light with no heat. Yeah. Light will be high intensity, but no heat. So it should not burn your body. Yeah, look, it sounds fantastic, uh, Ravi. Thanks so much for telling us about that. Good luck with the ongoing work. This, these changes in the way we do medicine are really uh, spectacular. I love hearing about these engineering, these new engineering innovations to assist with our healing. So thanks so much for being on Einstein the Go-Go today. Thank you.
folks, uh, we're almost out of time, but just uh, Kate, you're still on the line. So I just wanted to, a big thank you for bringing the team together, um, Professor Kate Fox. It's been great talking to your group there at RMIT. Thanks so much for doing that. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity to show our diversity. Yeah, look, it's it's really good, and it's um, we, we're going to hand over to the team from Edith, but I do appreciate you bringing such a diverse group of skilled individuals on who can communicate so effectively about the engineering work they're doing, and it's great to hear that so much of this is happening in Melbourne at RMIT. So um, congratulations, and um, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Thank you very much, Shane. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. It's been fantastic having your company this morning, and we will talk to you again in about uh, a week minus one hour from now. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.